When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What does Nicolas Pepe do? Hello and welcome to episode 12 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what has been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of action and so much so that Carl has been overwhelmed by it all and has unfortunately failed a late fitness test. However, that means that Drew is back after the international break and is leading the line once again. So that means there's going to be some back and forth between me and Drew. Drew, how have you been since we last spoke? I am doing well. Thank you for asking, Dan, especially since Chelsea got a, another win in clean sheet this weekend. And obviously, I'm, I would be excited for Carl to be coming back whenever that happens to be. But do you know who Wally Pip was? No, unfortunately, I don't. That's a new one on me. So he was an American baseball player like 100 years ago. And one day he asked for a day off. Just told the manager, said, yeah, you know, not really feeling it. And they replaced him in the lineup for that day. That guy who replaced him was Lou Gehrig, who went on to become one of the greatest players in all of baseball history. So I'm not saying I'm going to Wally Pip Carl, but he's got to watch out. Just saying. Carl, if you're listening, more importantly, get well soon, but you're on notice. There you go. The gauntlet has been uh, thrown down by Drew. (laughs) So this is the real proving ground over the next 60 minutes before... Drew shows his worth. Let's do some social media bits. So, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy1983. And also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. And it's sort of building up quite nicely. We're getting some sort of followers in, sort of communities building. So, do get involved in that as well. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. And if you use that platform, then don't forget to subscribe and leave a review so you won't miss a single episode or anything like that. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Acast. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. As you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. And what is Loserpool? I hear you ask. It's the company behind the game, Last Man Standing, one which is free to enter, and the prize pool once again stands at £1,000. If this has grabbed your interest, then be sure to visit loserpool.com and create an account. The odds of winning are great, but even better if you sign up. Right then, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? Let's go to Bramall Lane, as that one is freshest in the memory, as it took place last night. And it also saw Sheffield United get the better of Arsenal. So, Drew, I mentioned away from the recording that I was going to pick Sheffield United as my loser pool pick of the week, and we'll do more of those in a bit. And you said that Arsenal and playing away simply does not mesh. I'd have to say you're exactly right, because that was another abject Monday row performance from the Gunners. Yeah, absolutely. It It's so baffling to me that Arsenal can be Jekyll and Hyde between home and away matches. It just doesn't make sense. Now, obviously, last night... When you watch the game, Arsenal had some curious selections in the 11 by by Unai Emery. But some of those guys, Willick, Saka, they have played. So it's not as if this was their first 
uh, match in the Premier League or anything like that. They have featured a few other times this season. So at least I guess he's trying to be consistent, even though it's it's not really the best of, of descriptions. But it's just so mind-boggling that Arso can be two completely different sides at the Emirates and then away. And yeah, it wasn't a shock that they went in and lost this game. Now look, is Sheffield United a better team than Arsenal? Probably not. I'm sure there's there's lots of people who will say Arsenal are rubbish and they're they're, you know, they should be in the championship. I'm sure lots of people will say that about the Gunners. But obviously that's not true. But I don't know what em- Emery has to do to get his players to perform away from home. But he's got to do something because this, I mean, this is almost criminal to the fans for how bad Arsenal are away from home. Yeah, I think it is. And I think Jekyll and Hyde is the absolute perfect way to sum them up at the moment. So in addition to their defeat last night, I'm introducing a new segment to the show and it's going to continue until this particular player scores a Premier League goal in open play. And it's called, What Does Nicolas Pepe Actually Do? Drew, do you know the answer yet? I do know the answer, and right now the answer is nothing. Yes, that's right. I think that is the answer, because he's not looking like a man who is a club record signing. I know we've referenced this in the past, but we're now nine games in, and this sort of transitional period is almost sort of... You can't keep using that as an excuse now. You know, if you're if you're a £72 million player, you're bought to hit the ground running almost. Something. You don't really have that transitional period, that leeway, shall we say. So it wasn't a good showing for him last night either. It wasn't. Now... I think a lot of people are going to take what I'm about to say the wrong way and just just hear me out. Yes, Pepe is club record signing, you know, 70 million and and all, and all of that. But when you think about it in today's market, that's not really that much money. That's not money for a superstar. Now, I'm not saying that absolves him of any responsibility or or uh, makes it seem as if he doesn't need to perform. Of course not. Absolutely he needs to, and he needs to play way better up another 10 levels from what he's doing now. But again, $70 million, not really a huge number in today's market. So maybe, just maybe, Arsenal paid kind of a market rate for him and knew he wasn't going to be the savior of the Gunners. Again, should he be better than he is? Yes, absolutely. But $70 million, when you think about it, actually not that much. And so maybe the expectations were too high for him. And the fact that he hasn't hit those shouldn't shock as many people as it has so far. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, actually, because when you say seventy million, to me and you, in layman's terms, that is a lot of money. But in football, the bar has been raised so high in terms of transfers that if you're looking at a team that needs a star that's actually going to sort of hit the ground running and really influence from the beginning, you're probably looking at three figures minimum now, aren't you? You know, it needs to be at least a hundred million to be that kind of player. You know, someone like Philip Coutinho, who's gone to sort of um, Barcelona for over hundred million. I know he didn't have the most successful or as successful as they would have liked. But that's the kind of sort of money bracket we're now looking at. So in terms of sort of Pepe, he's almost sort of step under that now, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. When you look at the league he was in before the type of player he was, I don't think anyone could say 
you know, he's one of the top 10 players in the world. We expect him to reach the heights and be one of the best in world football right now. I mean, what, you know, one can dream, one can hope, of course, but I don't think that was really a, a realistic expectation of the man. I don't think anyone had those expectations of him, not even Arsenal fans, but I do think they, they have been looking for a second coming, right? With all of the stagnation or maybe regression under Arsene Wenger the past few years, now or uh, a few years ago, now with Unai Emery these past few years, two years, I think people are just looking for that one missing piece and it's going to turn around Arsenal. And I think they put a lot of hopes on Pepe. And because it hasn't worked out so far, he has underwhelmed quite a bit. I think that's why people are getting so frustrated with him. Because again, when you look at it, 70 million, not that much. And was he really going to come into Arsenal and be the guy that takes them to the Champions League final and a Premier League title? Probably not. No, I think the jury is still out. And I think if it has to make a decision, it's going to be sort of not looking too good for Pepe. I mean, it's still time to turn it around, but on the sort of... The sample of what we've seen so far, it's not looking too good for him, is it? So, the game itself, I think a fair assumption was that it was a mix of penalty calls and long-range shots by Lise Mousset's winner. So, of the contentious penalty calls in the first half, the two that really sort of sprung to mind were the Arsenal ones. I know Sheffield United had a small claim, but that was more just being strength off the ball. So, if we look at the Arsenal ones in isolation, the first one was Socrates, who had his shirt pulled in the box. Did you think that was a penalty? And also... Moments later, or later in that half, the yellow card for Saka in regards to simulation. Did you think that was the right call? So let's start with the simulation. I think watching it on TV, the camera angle, obviously, you know, it's you know far away and it, and it was on the far side of the pitch. It did look like a dive. Absolutely, I thought. I, me, personally, I don't have a problem with diving. I, I know... Uh, in Europe, it's kind of a different opinion than what we have here in the Americas, which is fine. Um, so it, it did look like a dive and, and what would be considered a yellow card. So I wasn't surprised he got one for that. When seeing a replay, different camera angle, much closer, you can see contact on his leg. And I think it would have been a soft uh, call. But I think there was enough contact at the speed they were going, kind of the angle coming together. If they went to VAR, which we know the Premier League refuses to do and, and change anything, I I wouldn't be up in arms if they had given him a a uh, a foul on that instead of a yellow card. So I, I, I can see it kind of going both ways. Again, live on TV, I thought it was definitely a dive. and it And I thought, yep, yellow card, that's what you get. That's what it looked like to me in real time. Okay, yeah, I think I would agree with exactly that, to be honest. I think the way he sort of... It looked like he sort of bent his body slightly, but, you know, when you sort of slow things down and replays that you're never quite seeing it at real time either. So I think from a TV point of view, then yes, but whether they were to ever to call it back, that's something we'll discuss in a minute about why we're not seeing um, referees go to the monitors. But in terms of Socrates, had his shirt pulled. We use the cliche, I've seen him given. Why was he not given last night? Yeah, oh boy, that that's a good question. Honestly, I think part of the reason might be Arsenal's defense is terrible and Socrates in particular, I think has 
not earned himself as a reputation so much to say. Um, but right there, there was one a few weeks back when they played Spurs, when him and Harry Kane kind of went into a tussle a little bit in the box. Uh, I know it's a, a completely different situation, but I think to a certain degree, he kind of has earned a reputation amongst the officials that he's going to try and milk everything. And so in this case against Sheffield United, I think that probably played into why he wasn't given the call. Okay, um, yeah, I think that's another sort of fair statement to make, to be honest. I think, that, like you say, his reputation goes before him. It's probably his, and, on, and Arsenal, sorry, his undoing last night. So, in terms of the match itself, it wasn't the prettiest. Let's make no bones about it. But we shouldn't take anything away from Sheffield United, of course, because obviously they picked up all three points. And it seems as if, is, as if Chris Wilder's men are going to look to build a solid defensive platform. I think they've only scored eight this season, but at the same time conceded seven. So, you know, as long as you're not shipping too many at the other end, it's not too much of a crisis. And, you know, night for the table, it seems to be a system that works. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Sheffield United have put in a few good performances, and especially against, you know, the big six, right? This one against Arsenal, and you can... Put in any caveat you want about Arsenal, but they put in a good performance, got three points, and yes, it was at home. At Chelsea, they battled back from two down at the half against Liverpool. They really stifled him and ran with him the entire match until that one, you know, howler from from uh, Henderson. So Sheffield United have put in a lot of good performances, and to to have that record against the big six one win one draw and one loss and the loss was pretty pretty dang close I think Chris Wilder and Sheffield have to be excited and think you know what guys we have a chance I think they're a little bit higher in the table right now than than they expected and where they will end up eventually I think ninth is is a bit too high for them but I could definitely see them battle to finish not just you know uh, 17th or 16th I could see them trying to battle to get into 13th or 12th or something like that and get really close uh, to mid-table and comfortable from the relegation zone I think it's going to be a tough battle but if they can continue to rise to the occasion especially against the so-called big six then I think they have a legitimate shot of doing that yeah I mean if they can make Bramwell Lane a fortress like we've sort of seen against the bigger teams make it a place that teams don't want to go to it's you know gritty, nasty. Then they've got every chance of staying up. You know, out of the three promoted teams, you could argue they're probably in the best position. Um, but you know, again, at the same time, goals will always be you know the key metric. And although they are tight at the back, if they're not scoring, that could be their undoing. So they need to make sure they're just tight. And I think if they can keep tight at home, they're going to go a long way to staying up. Right. Let's go back twenty-four and a bit hours and the biggest clash of the weekend, one which at most times, never quite lives up to the hype. And there is a lot of hype surrounding it. And that, of course, is Manchester United versus Liverpool. And you'd have to say, Drew, that United did seem to offer a lot more than they have in previous weeks. Yeah, they definitely got up for this match. And I think Solskjaer got his tactics spot on, surprisingly. You know, moving to the back three. And even with that, he didn't panic when they had an injury and needed to emergency start Marcus Rojo on the left side of the of the back three. So I think props to Solskjaer. It it wasn't great, right? Manchester United didn't look, oh my God, now I'm I'm so confident they're gonna, you know, climb back into the top four fight. No, that's definitely not gonna happen. But for this one match, I thought they they finally 
got up for it and, and, and did a very good job. They were fantastic being able to to stop Liverpool's attack, even without Mo Salah. I still think United deserve a lot of credit for that. And something that they have shown a little bit of success with, uh, especially if you go back to the Chelsea game, was counterattacks. Score on a counter, and then you can kind of seal the game. And so I think Manchester United did something that is or can be one of their strengths. So it was a bit of a Hail Mary attempt from Solskjaer. It worked out, and I think he's going to stick with it. Maybe not every single every single time out, but I do think in some bigger matches against some superior opposition, I think Solskjaer will revert to a back three again as a way to try and save his job, of course, but to see if that can save Manchester United's season as well. That said... This was not the Liverpool team that breezed past all before them in the past 17 games. You'd have to say a real out-of-sorts performance. And one, you could almost argue that they were fortunate enough to nick a draw. So, did the history of the game, did the occasion, did that get the better of them? No, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Because, you know, in, in the last few weeks, they have had their struggles at times. Right before the international break, when they took on Leicester, Leicester gave them a dogfight against Sheffield, like we previously mentioned. They, they struggled a lot. In the Champions League, you know, they blew a huge lead to Red Bull Salzburg. So Liverpool have, have been struggling a little bit in recent weeks. So I think that was part of it. Plus, again, I think Solskjaer's tactics really, really worked because Robertson and Alexander-Arnold were not able to fly up and down uh, the touchline as they normally do. And I think part of that was because they had a back three from United. Therefore, their wing backs were able to not necessarily man mark them, but definitely keep them from advancing forward too easily and too often. I think also Andres Pereira playing uh, so centrally was able to, to mark out Fabinho at a lot of times. So I, I think Liverpool lacked the creativity in midfield, which has been a problem for them. That's something that they, they generally don't have, and it really hurt them. And with that, with Salah out, Firmino had to ch- change a little bit the way he's going to play. And then Mane was on the opposite side with Origi going on the left. And so I think that changes the dynamic of the attack as well. So that part comes down to Liverpool. Again, though, I think you have to credit Manchester United. They got everything right tactically. And Liverpool... One of their flaws was creativity through the midfield, and that really shone in this match. And so Jurgen Klopp has to be able to figure out how he can make that more dynamic. But I also think they're going to be fine. I don't see this game as an indication of, oh, look, Liverpool are slipping. Now they got to watch out for Manchester City. I think Liverpool will be fine. They're going to get back on track. Maybe it takes them another game or two. Um, but playing midweek in the Champions League against Gank will definitely give them that opportunity to get back into the swing of things. Yeah, I think Liverpool certainly look better once they switch to a 4-2-3-1 in the second half. And when Divock Origi plays, the balance of the front three in the first half, it never quite seems to work as well as when you've got you know the, the triumvirates of um, you know Firmino, Salah and Mane. It just doesn't seem to, to click as much. But um, in terms of the game, it was once again a game dominated by VAR. You know, it's not the first time we've said this, it won't be the last. Two main decisions came in the space of just a few minutes. Firstly, Divock Origi went to ground in the build-up for Marcus Rashford's goal. So, do you think that should have been pulled back for a free kick? And then a couple of minutes later, obviously, we had Sadio Mane 
with a goal being ruled out for handball. Do you think that was the correct decision? So what's your take on both of these moments? Yeah, so let's go chronologically for the the Manchester United goal. The kick on Origi, kind of like we talked about earlier. If it's called, I get it. If it's not, I get it. And the thing with this one was it didn't seem like Origi got kicked that hard. And it also didn't seem as if the kick took his legs out and made him uh, lose his balance and, and ultimately fall. It seemed like he really laid into that one, which no problem. That's what you're supposed to do. Do anything you can to help your team. Get a foul call and, and you know set up a free kick and try and head one in. You know whatever. I, I don't have a problem with him trying to make the most of it. I also would say on that, well, Liverpool, you know, you got to defend the counter a little bit better than they did. So I would not have pulled that back with VAR. Again, I can understand why someone would if uh, they said, you know, let's chop that off. That doesn't count. When it comes to Sadio Mane and the handball, by, by the letter of the law now, yeah, that, that goal needs to be chopped off because it did in fact hit his hand. I, for one, am someone who believes this football is a game where you you can't use your hands, you can't use your arms. So anything that that hits it, it's a I guess not a foul, but a, a dead ball. I also do understand the argument, and I can get on board with people who say if it's unintentional and clearly with Mane it was, then it shouldn't really be called because he wasn't trying to do it, and this one had you would say probably very minimal effect. So I can get on board with that. But the way I look at it is a game is or football is a game. You can't use your arms and hands. And plus, that's the way the law is written now. So, yeah, absolutely. Take that one back. I think Solskjaer was saying that, obviously, we're not playing basketball. So the Origi tackle that, yes, there was contact. We all know that. But was there enough for it to be pulled back? And when we're sort of saying that it has to be a clear and obvious error, it probably wasn't a clear and obvious error. So that's arguably why the goal stood. And you're right in the sense of Sadio Mane, under the letter of the law, it can't be a goal. Last season, I mean, we would never know the answer, but more than likely, that goal stands. So you'd have to sort of say, on the balance of probabilities, both ones, in terms of decisions, were correct. You know, obviously, it's not going to please the likes of Jurgen Klopp, who was probably his most irate we've seen all season. But, you know, I think it wasn't the worst that we've seen of VAR. Um, again, it does seem to be something that's only used for offsides and handballs. There's just this everlasting question as to why referees aren't going to the monitors, but this is the, the bar that's been set so high, and you almost get to the point where the Premier League don't want to be seen to be changing that bar or lowering the bar at a point through the season. It might be next season they lower the bar for the sort of the quality threshold and say, yes, you should start going to the monitors, but it's all about sort of trying to save face now, do you not think? Yeah, absolutely. I I was just about to say that before you put it into the question. Yes, I think they don't want to do an about face. And and I, I think that's understandable. You know, no one ever wants to admit being wrong. And, you know, this isn't just about football. This is about anything in life. No one wants to ever say, yeah, I was wrong. No one ever wants to say, oh, you know, I'm embarrassed because I made a mistake. And I, and I think they're trying to ride that out this season and really hoping and praying that they don't have too many calls because at some point and I there's going to be a tipping point where I think fans, managers, maybe even clubs are going to say this is getting out of hand and we have to reverse course and whether it's they're going to change and say, 
you know, no more of no more of this high bar. Maybe it's going to be almost any VAR decision other than offside and handball. They'll almost force referees to go to the monitor. Or and this is very unlikely. But maybe they're going to stop using VAR come next season again. I highly doubt that's the case. But there is going to be a tipping point. I don't know what it's going to be. It's, it, it, I would assume it's going to be in a, a high-stakes match. If it's Liverpool-Manchester City, something like that, and there is a huge call, and of course one side is going to be very upset for whichever way the call happens to go. And so that tipping point, it's coming. I don't know when, I don't know where, but it's going to happen, and the FA is going to have to make some sort of change. And I think they're going to have to swallow their pride. There you go. You have been warned. Danger is coming in regard to VAR. Also, danger seems to be coming to Mauricio Pochettino because the draw for United eases the pressure on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and it also sees him slip down the order in the odds for the managerial sack race. However, Pochettino has now moved above him because pundits and punters alike would have had Tottenham to beat Watford on Saturday, almost a home banker. However, Drew, it seems as if the international break has done Spurs no favours whatsoever because that was another poor showing at the weekend. Yeah, and I was one of those guys who expected Spurs to to bounce back. I had Harry Kane in my fantasy team, and that didn't work out. <laughs> no, I mean... I, I, I'm, I'm trying to ride him out. I'm thinking, he's a great goal scorer. Spurs will come around. I'm trying to ride it out, but boy, he is testing my patience. Um, no, for, for, for this game, I mean, this... This is how bad it's gotten at Spurs. At home, they escaped with a point against Watford, the worst team in the league this year, a team that hadn't won in eight matches, now nine, a team that was tied for most goals allowed in the league, tied for least goals scored in the league. That's how bad Spurs are right now, is that they escaped with a point at home against that team. Now, you know, we, we can talk all day about, uh, does Pochettino need to go? Is it the players? Is it a combination? Is it neither? We can talk all day about that. But there, there's something that I, I think is a little bit kind of out of everyone's hands, kind of, you know, kind of cosmic justice going on right now. You know, something I remember learning when, when I took physics is uh, when you have like motion and things out of whack, the farther it is out of whack positive, when it reverts to the mean, it's going to overshoot negative. And the farther out of whack positive, the farther negative it goes. And I think that's what you're seeing at Spurs right now. Because last season, I think, right, Dan, you you, you could admit that Spurs were not the second best team in Europe oh, absolutely. last season. Yeah, I mean, there's no arguing about that. I mean, whether it was luck, I don't know. But yeah, we weren't in a position where we could say we are one of Europe's best teams. We're just not, and we weren't. So I think I can see the point you're trying to make that we sort of shot so much over on mean that now we're sort of being pulled back and it's like, right, you had that absolute high, but now you're going to have to deal with some lows. Is that the sort of trying to, I guess in layman's terms, is that where we are, Drew? Exactly, yeah. And so I think that's what's happening. Spurs are reverting to the mean, and because they were so far positive last year, they're now overshooting the mean negative. Because, I mean, look, taking in Spurs' squad... They are better than the performances they've put in on several occasions this season. Pochettino as a manager 
is better than what his team he's gotten out of his team this year. I, I, anyone can say that. That's absolutely true. But again, I, I, I think at some point Spurs are going to come good, or at least come neutral. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. At some point, that's going to happen. I think a lot of people, including myself, thought it would be sooner than this. You know, maybe a few bad games here and there, but this seems you know week in week out consistently happening and i and so i understand and and i kind of empathize with spurs fans because right just a few years ago the Mourinho season at stanford bridge right this happened with chelsea where they finished i think it was 11th or 10th so i you know i I as a fan have been through this just a few seasons ago so i do empathize i do again i think at some point this season spurs will come good i don't think they're going to be in the bottom half of the table and at some point, it's finally going to click again, and they'll be back to maybe not their best, but much better than they are now. Because I was at the game on Saturday, and after going behind, it just sucked the life out of the stadium. And although fans need something to sort of cheer, there's got to be some product on the pitch to get up and sort of rising and all that. There was very little on offer on Saturday. So you could tell this is a team lacking in confidence, and even more so when you've given a team at home a head start. You just sort of said that we're going to come good, but is it going to get worse before it gets better? It sure seems like it. Yes, you're right. I think it does. Because if you look uh, at the nine games, one, three, drawn three, lost three, that's as average as it can be. So we've got Liverpool at the weekend. You know, you're thinking it's probably going to get worse there. You know, add another uh, defeat to the L column. So, I mean, we're now going to be, what, 10 games in if we do lose. I don't want to be pessimistic, but let's assume we do. You know, at what point does it finally click? Because I've been very guilty of saying the season starts now, and you know, you cross that game off and go, okay, the season starts at this game. It was meant to start on Saturday. It hasn't started. You know, start at what point do Spurs finally get going? Because usually they're good for an autumn run, and you sort of think this is when they really get their momentum going, and that's what sort of keeps them in that sort of top four bubble, which has done them very well over the last sort of three seasons. But I'm looking at the fixtures, and I'm sort of thinking. I can't see him stringing sort of even five or six wins at the moment, and that's the real concern. Yeah, when does the season start, you said? I, right now, it looks like March. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a relegation battle if we're not careful. I mean, I don't, without being flippant, I don't think it's going to be that bad, but I do feel that, you know, we have a team or a squad that can compete to be in the top four, but as of right now, I don't think we're going to get top four. We're not in the right place mentally. I don't think, you know, there's so many tangible reasons that are out of sync and all that and it's not just one sort of reason if it was one reason you could identify if it was the manager you'd sack the manager but I don't think it necessarily is sort of his hill to die at the moment so you know how do Tottenham restore confidence Drew? Boy that's a tough one because it seems anytime they surrender a goal and like you said you know Watford went ahead early in this one the fans and, and I'm sure the team they just think oh here we go again I think that's what's on everyone's mind. If I, I, I don't, I'm not saying this is going to work, but if Pochettino really wants to stir things up, the next time they face in the Premier League, and and probably the soonest chance they have would be Sheffield United, and a, a mediocre to bottom side team. And again, I'm not saying this is going to work, but just change out your entire eleven. Just put put in all the young kids. Tell pretty much everyone, Harry Kane, Lucas Moura, Youngman Son, even though Son probably deserves to continue playing, 
you know, Alderweireld, Vertonghen, you just tell everyone, you're out. You guys are missing this game. You don't deserve it. And the reason I say to do that is because obviously you don't want to do that against Liverpool or Manchester City and get smoked, you know, 8-0, especially if it's at home. You, you don't want that to happen. But I, I think something radical like that might kind of jar the players and possibly the fans. And maybe that would be enough to kind of like shock them, almost like a defibrillator, back into life. Yeah, I mean, that's an incredibly bold claim. And it's not too far from what should be done. But unfortunately, I don't think a Premier League manager who's under pressure can almost take that risk. I mean, if he did that and Spurs won, you'd be lauded as an absolute genius. And I think it's what the club needs. Almost like some sort of shock and awe. Just like, right, really just rip this apart and start again. But, you know, who's got the biggest set of grapefruits in the Premier League? And I don't think it's Pochettino at the moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, that that's a pretty bold move to do. And whether you have the cojones or not, like that's you're really playing with. I mean, you're you're playing with fire with no gloves, no mask, nothing, and pouring gasoline on it and saying, "Yeah, you know what? I think this will be great. This is going to work out." Again, though, I think if you do that, you really are telling the players you're playing for your money, you're playing for your livelihood, you're playing for your contract. And that might be enough to spark life into them. Some of them maybe not. Take Christian Eriksen, right? He's clearly mentally checked out. He doesn't want to be there anymore. And I, I, obviously you don't want to weaken the squad in January. I think Spurs, they have to sell him. They have to get rid of him. Because I, I, I'm not saying that if they get rid of him, then all of a sudden all of Tottenham's ills go away. No, probably not. But... He is a, a, a very bad apple continuing to rot in the in the dressing room, I think. And there's probably a couple other guys who are just mentally checked out. And they think to themselves, you know what? Who cares? Because if Spurs go down, I'm not going to be here to go down with them. And so they, they kind of don't have to have that sense of urgency. Unfortunately, of, of course, for, for Spurs as a club and, and for their fans. I think with Christian Eriksen, I think he'll dig in and go on a free transfer in the summer because I think clubs will look at it the way he's certainly playing at the moment and thinking, well, actually, why do I need to spend £50 Because he's not really earning or performing as to that kind of money anyway. So you think, I might as well just take the punt and get him on a free. And if, you know, the way he's playing at the moment, Real Madrid will think, no, nah, actually, I'll leave it. So I don't think Tottenham will sell him only because there's a lack of suitors prepared to actually spend money in the new year. But... That's enough about Tottenham. We could go on all afternoon and lament about that, but we've got a lot of other bits to cover. So that'll come on the other side of the break. So don't go anywhere because we'll be back very soon. Your accumulator letting you down again. You've cashed out early. And you just can't win. Prehistoric football coupons. Nah. Have a think about it. Why not play a new way? Loserpool. Pick a loser and win a thousand pounds in a last man standing tournament. Be a loser and win at Loserpool. Enter for free now. Visit loserpool.com. Okay, welcome back. I hope you're still there. Right, it's time to pay the bills. It's time to play our Loserpool prediction game. So, last week, because it was the international break, I got the picks off recording, shall I say. And to summarise what's happened, Carl went for Newcastle, Drew went for Burnley, I went for Sheffield United, which means that Carl is on 100% run, so he now is up to four points. Drew's off the mark with two, and I stay on two, 
because the Gunners did me over last night. So, it's week three of the picks. As we know that Cole has failed a fitness test, but he's been good enough to radio in with his pick for this week. And like all Tottenham fans, he's really confident because he's gone against his own. That's right, he's picked Spurs to lose away at Liverpool. So, <laughs> I can't say I necessarily blame him. I can see the logic behind it. So, Cole is going to hang his hat on Tottenham to lose away at Liverpool. So, Drew, what have you got for me as your third round pick? You can't have Burnley because you picked them last week. And obviously, Spurs has just gone. Yeah, just real quick, uh, in terms of Carl's pick, that is that is a man worth respecting to go against his own team. I mean, that that's like a player betting on his team to lose, and he's not even playing in the match. That is a respectable man there. So big ups to Carl for that. For me, I, I was kind of torn. I had a few ideas, but I'm going to go with Aston Villa losing at Manchester City. I that that I know that's a bold one, but I think Aston Villa have done fine at home. I think on the road is where they've had a little bit of troubles. And Manchester City, I, I think the win over um, Crystal Palace a little bit is going to kind of kick them back on. So I'm going with Aston Villa to lose at Manchester City. That's a solid pick. Right, okay. Quite, the rest don't really sort of stand out. Actually, that said, Arsenal did me over this week. Hopefully they're going to do me a favour this coming weekend because I'm going to go for Crystal Palace to lose away at the Emirates only because this is going to be the other side of the Jekyll and Hyde because Arsenal are rotten away from home but they're quite good at the Emirates so I'm going to go for Palace to lose so just to recap Carl's gone for Spurs to lose against Liverpool Drew's gone for Aston Villa to lose at Man City and I've gone for Crystal Palace to lose at Arsenal and they are our loserpool loser picks of the week Right then, so what we've got left in the bank, we've got about 25 minutes, there's still quite a fair few games to cover, so that's not a problem, but let's speed things up, because we go to, let's go to, let's stay in London, let's go to Selhurst Park, and earlier in the day, sorry, later in the day, shall I say, when Tottenham drew Watford, it was Man City going to Crystal Palace, they managed to cut the gap at the top of the table to five points, albeit then went back up to six a day later, with a rather routine win over Crystal Palace, Two goals in quick succession, the first coming from Gabriel Jesus. And again, was it something of a surprise that he once again got the nod over Sergio Aguero? Not really, because I, I think no matter how much Pep and Manchester City deny this, I think 100% their priority is the Champions League. Therefore, I think not not that At Atalanta, their, their opponents uh, midweek, are a formidable opponent in Europe I would say though they they might pose a threat to City's overall goal more than Crystal Palace did and so I think that was kind of the thinking was we'll play Aguero give Jesus this plus Jesus has played well so it's not as if they're really going down a step in quality when they go to Gabriel Jesus so I think it was just kind of honest rotation which Manchester City does a lot anyways so I think that was more that that uh, played into it and it happened to work out right he got the first goal anyways but I think him and Aguero will continue to uh, rotate at center forward uh, for Manchester City Pep is absolutely killing my fantasy team this season this rotation up front is absolutely nobbling me so I think I'm gonna have to take Aguero out because it's becoming more and more of a risk each week so um, that's twice he's stung me now I think lesson is finally learned in terms of Gabriel Jesus, obviously David Silva's fantastic effort moments later wraps up the game. However, the cherry should have been on top of the cake in the second half when Jesus should have really squared it to Kevin De Bruyne. I bet there was a bit of a uh, tense conversation in the dressing room about that one. 
Oh, yeah, you know De Bruyne was fuming after that. And I remember seeing it, and, and right, I'm not a professional footballer, never have been, never even been close to it. And even I was yelling at the TV, square it, he's there. I mean, it, it was blatantly obvious that Kevin De Bruyne was wide open for a tap-in. On the flip side, I think it is important to say with Jesus, I don't think he picked his head up. I don't think he saw him. I don't think he saw him and ignored him. Now, obviously, you can criticize the man for not having his head up and seeing a, a runner. But also, as a goal scorer, as someone who scored in the game already, and now he's trying to earn his place as the number nine, I don't blame him. He's thinking, I got to score again. I got to cement my place as the striker at Manchester City, something they brought him in to do, something he's failed to do, not not you know crazy bad, but he, he definitely hasn't risen to the heights that they wanted out of him or expected. And so I think a little bit of that was he's like, you know, here's my chance, because even previously this season he said he was frustrated not playing as much. And so I think in that moment he's like, here's my chance, I'm going to get a brace and then obviously hopefully a hat later on. And so I think that was part of the reason that he had a bit of tunnel vision and said, I'm going to score this. I'm sure after the game, De Bruyne, like you said, heated conversation in the dressing room. And I'm sure even Pep said to him, look, you can't do that. You got to be more selfless. You got to look out for the team a little bit more. And, you know, lesson learned. So I think he'll be fine. De Bruyne's Belgium teammate, Christian Benteke, was a sub for Palace and almost had an impact off the bench straight away. So, we, you know... Unfortunate not to score on Saturday. However, if we look at Benteke's overall record at the club, it's fair to say his time at Selhurst Park has been a complete bust. So where has it gone wrong for the Belgian international? Jeez, where hasn't it gone wrong? He, I mean, Selhurst Park for him, or I guess just Crystal Palace in general, not not only home, home matches. I mean, it, it's really been a place where his career has gone to die, unfortunately. And, and you're right, for someone who had as much promise as he did for someone who has as much ability as he maybe I should say this on the past tense as he had not anymore he should be so much better but I, I and clearly I, I think it comes down to just more or I'm sorry it doesn't come down to just game performances because he doesn't even start so I mean in training he just must not be impressing and it's unfortunate because he has a lot more potential than what he's shown at Crystal Palace. But honestly, it just looks like he's never going to reach that. And he's just going to continue kind of toiling on the bench, coming on for 15, 20 minutes. And you're right. He got close to, to pulling one back. You know, it, great. Was that the one off the post or maybe it was a save from Ederson? One of them. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't it was know. A save from Ederson, it was it? a save. Yeah. So, you know, he, he, uh, unfortunately, was you know uh, stopped by by uh, uh, an incredible save there, but yeah, it, it seems his career has gone to die at Crystal Palace, and and I don't really see him reviving it anytime soon. No, I think you're absolutely right. It's just when you look at what he had. I mean, Aston Villa probably his peak. Liverpool didn't quite work out, but Palace, you like say Graveyard is probably the perfect fitting because his career is just falling apart. Really, in terms of Selhurst Park, Roy Hodgson. So he's currently got the Eagles lying six in the table. But he's not getting any younger, is he? I mean, the improvement that Palace have seems to be continuing each season. But how long can the former England boss stay in charge? Do you think this is his final season? Do you also think Palace are maybe making quiet background plans because of this? Yeah, C Crystal Palace, they, they know 
they obviously have a contingency plan. And Roy Hodgson, whether he you know sees out the entire season or not, there's absolutely no way they can think, you know what, I think we can milk him for another four years. There's no way. So yeah, the, the, I think I wouldn't be surprised if the board has had this conversation with him. Not because they think he's doing a bad job or not because they think he's incompetent, but like you said, he he's getting up there in age. I mean, how much longer can can Hodgson really do it? I mean, he's coached practically every team <laughs> uh, imaginable. And so I think that's, at some point, if they haven't had that conversation with him yet, they have to be doing it soon. And they have to be, yeah, scouting who the next manager is going to be and and I don't think that's I don't think that's, you know, disrespectful. I don't think it's a slap across Hodgson's face cuz I, I don't think they would bring someone in just because oh, well Hodgson's getting up there, so, you know, let's just get rid of him now. I don't think they're going to do that. I I think it's just a uh, a reality of him as a manager, his age and kind of the situation they have. Yeah, I mean, I think they'd be foolish not to have some sort of succession planning should they because you know let's be honest he's not getting any younger he is at a sort of age where you sort of think how much more can you get out of him so I think you know if the club wants to keep going where they are you know whether they sort of actually progress or not I think that sort of comes down to whether they can actually rebuild their stadium as well there's a lot more pieces of jigsaw to actually sort of boost Palace but if they can sort of stay in that comfortable mid-table bracket and be looking up the table rather than over their shoulders then that in itself is success and it's going to be a very important decision as to who takes the the reins next because you only have to remember they hired Frank de Boer didn't they and look how that one turned out so if they get it wrong it could set them back quite a bit and in double quick time yeah absolutely you know the, the funny thing with Frank de Boer so he got fired after what was it four 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 games I think it was, it was seven and- seven games no points no goals Okay, yeah, so so a little bit longer than I, than I thought. Yeah, seven games. Well, when he came to MLS this season uh, over here in the U.S., the same thing with Atlanta United. People wanted him gone right away, and now they're in the they're in the playoffs, and some people have them going back to back. So, or well, their their first title wasn't under him, but so maybe Crystal Palace should have stuck with him a little bit longer than they did. Well, I mean, hindsight is a wonderful thing in football, isn't it? But I think we're all guilty of saying, if only, if we only did that. But I think if you've played seven matches and you've not even got a goal, that's probably the time you think, right, we can just pull the trigger and just forget this happened. There's still enough time to salvage the season, and Hodgson did exactly that. So, you know, I think they can understand why Palace made that decision. Staying in London, and Drew, your boys, Chelsea, I think they're sort of quietly going about their business at the moment. Three straight wins into the top four wasn't necessarily the most exciting win at Stamford Bridge, but if you're grinding out points, that's not a bad thing either, is it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, so it, it's five wins on the bounce in all competitions, three in the Premier League. And, and I think a lot of it comes down to Frank Lampard is improving as a manager because everything he struggled with at the beginning of the season hurt Chelsea. They always came out flat in the second half and allowed late goals for equalizers. Uh, substitutions that he made were doing nothing. He made a lot of bad decisions early on, but now he's getting those right. I mean, this weekend, Christian Pulisic came on as a sub, and he didn't get the assist, but his run into the box really started that goal. He laid it off, and then another pass after that was the winner. Uh, A few weeks ago, Pulisic and Batshuayi subbed on, and they got a goal. 
garbage time goal, fine. But, hey, still, two substitutes combined. In the Champions League, Callum Hudson-Odoi subbed on, and he had the assist for the winner at, at Lille. Second halves have been much better now. This one against uh, Newcastle, second half winner. Against Southampton, Chelsea was already up 3-1, but then in the second stanza, they locked it down, didn't allow another goal. So everything that was hurting Chelsea, and especially because of Frank Lampard, he's now doing a much better job of. Second half team, or team talks at halftime are clearly working. He's gone to a back three at times, and I think that's when Chelsea's defense has looked best. So... I think Lampard is improving as a manager, and it, and the team is reaping massive, massive dividends because of it. Earlier in the show, we talked about what Pepe does for Arsenal. I think I'm going to offer a similar segment called What Use is Joe Linton for Newcastle? Probably a bit too early to write him off completely, but it's fair to say the transition to the Premier League has not been an easy one so far. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I, I kind of think Newcastle bought him because... They couldn't attract a higher quality player. And and I and I don't mean that disrespectfully to Joelinton. He wasn't amazing in Germany. He was just kind of, you know, bang average. And I think you're now seeing that in probably uh, a superior league, but also paired with that is an inferior team that he's come to. And and so I think, you know, he, he hasn't done much here, right? But I also think He's kind of lacking the opportunity to do so, especially because Crystal Palace – or I'm sorry, uh, Newcastle are always you know, sitting behind the ball with 10 guys. They don't really have possession ever, and if they do on, go on the counterattack, it's far and few between. And so I think he's really suffering from just being in a, in a terrible situation. With that being said, yeah, if, if, you're, if you're a quality striker, you got to make things happen, sure. But – I, I think he he is suffering more from the situation at hand. Certainly a lot more than, than Pepe is at Arsenal. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement to make. You know, obviously he's not making the transition and then he's having to sort of carry arguably more of a load at Newcastle. Add to the mix that Newcastle themselves has scored five goals all season. So, you know, if you extrapolate that ratio across the full season, you're looking at something like 22 goals and that, is relegation form. So whether they'll score that few, they'll probably score a bit more, but they've got to start finding the net soon because at the moment it's looking pretty bleak for the Magpies. One place above Chelsea are Leicester, and they are because they won a 2-1 home win over Burnley. Slightly contentious though, the visitors thought they'd nicked a draw when Chris Wood slotted home. However, it was pulled back by VAR for an apparent trip on Johnny Evans. Was there enough in this one to overturn the call, Drew? I did not understand this when I was watching it, and and not even just the replays, you know, during the match, but like in in post game shows, I'm listening to what to what the the pundits are saying, and I'm like, I don't see it. I I didn't see one camera angle that I was like, oh, there it is. Clearly, that was a foul. I did not understand where that came from, and, and, and if anything, it looked like I, it was Johnny Evans, right, the defender. Yeah. It, it looked it looked like he fell on his own. I, I, for the life of me, will never understand why that goal was pulled back. I thought maybe they were trying to say he was offside at some point. Like, I, I didn't see anything that would convince me that that, that, that goal should have been pulled back. Uh, obviously fortunate for Leicester, but I have no idea where that call came from. I mean, if there was ever 
an incident that needs to go to the monitor, this was probably the one because you're sort of thinking you've got the technology, ref, just go and have a look because it was so, it was so sort of small in the sort of the context and the contact. You think is that really? worthy of a punishment of not giving a goal because I don't think it was a foul really I think that was yes there was contact because like Solskjaer says it's not basketball contact is allowed but contact doesn't necessarily mean foul at the same time does it Drew? No, absolutely not. I mean, uh, fo- football is is a contact sport, as most sports are. It's a contact sport. You, I mean, th- I mean that that's something that that they teach you is being able to shield a defender if you're a striker or if you're a defender, right? Being strong up against. Uh, the forward, the attacker coming at you. I mean, that's something that you learn from being a kid. You have to be strong. You have to fight for the ball. So, of course, you're going to have contact. And and like you said, I, there was so minimal contact on that. I I was was baffled by the fact that VAR took that one back. It didn't make sense to me. Me neither. Okay, let's rattle through the last quartet of fixtures. So, Everton-West Ham. When we were last together on the show, Drew... We spoke about Marco Silva and his head being on the chopping block. He looks like he's been saved for now, at least, because that was an impressive enough win over West Ham. However, you'd have to also say that that was the worst that West Ham have played since the opening weekend, thrashing by Manchester City. Yeah, so Ever or not Everton, uh, Marco Silva, he's still on the chopping block. Don't worry, they just they just haven't closed the guillotine and set it. <laughs> I yeah. mean, he he has. Maybe maybe they they told the crowd, hey, go get lunch and come back in an hour, and we'll reevaluate. He yeah, he's this game. Look, Everton were very dominant, right? Beyond the two goals, they had a, a lot of other shots on target. And you're right, West Ham were were awful in in this match, surprisingly bad. But Marco Silva, he has not cleared his name just yet. This was a good performance. It buys him another week or two, maybe, but. Uh, he, he's not saved just yet. Aston Villa versus Brighton. So a bit of drama there because Aaron Moy was sent off in the first half. Brighton had to play the majority of the game with 10 men. It looks as if they were going to hold out because, you know, one all, final sort of few seconds all that. And Matt Target was on target as he scored the goal which broke Seagull's hearts. So he gets the winner. He'll be in the history books as the match winner. But it's fair to say that Jack Grealish will earn all the plaudits from that performance. Yeah, he was fantastic for them. And rightfully so. Rightfully so. He's their their captain, of course, but arguably their their most talented player and someone that they've really put a lot of expectations on. And he hasn't quite performed this year back in the Premier League as I think people wanted or hoped for. But in the, but in this match, he was really good. He got the goal, the first goal. Then he had the assist on on targets for the winner. And this was probably his most comprehensive performance. This season for Villas, and and I think kind of with that, as goes Jack, Jack Graylish a little bit, as goes Aston Villa, and if he can kind of use this to to launch into you know a good run of form, then I think Villa can can do that as well. They've scored a lot of goals this season, uh, you know, two more here, and I, I think Villa, out of the three promoted teams, should finish the highest. Yeah, I think it's obviously going to be between them and Sheffield United, and I think. Um, Villa will be well poised because they've got an attacking threat. Yes, they are susceptible at the back, but you know they do have enough to sort of attack their way out of trouble, which in itself is a risky strategy. But if it pulls off, then I can't see there being many complaints from Dean Smith and everyone connected with the club. 
Wolves versus Southampton. I think you'd have to say a frustrating draw for Wolves, especially as Raul Jimenez had not one but two goals disallowed via VAR. I don't think they were all that contentious, though. You'd have to say they're probably the right decisions. But at the same time, two points dropped for the hosts? You know, I don't see it as two points dropped because I didn't think Wolves were that good in this game. I actually think they were lucky to get a point. Now, now I think it seems their performance seems better on paper because they had those two goals, and I think rightfully so, taken away by VAR. But I, they weren't really that good. I, I think they, they didn't escape. I think that's too strong of a word. So they earned a draw, but I, I don't think that they had this massive opportunity and blew it. I, I think this is actually a, a correct scoreline and result for both sides. Yeah, I think it's a better draw for Southampton, let's say that, and I think they are going to have to sort of start picking up a little bit because they're just on the right side of the relegation line at the moment. You could argue that Southampton's approach is starting to be found out now. Obviously, Ralph Hussartle came in um, about this time last season. You know, a lot of energy to start with, but they just aren't quite hitting those same levels at the moment. So it be an interesting sort of autumn and winter for the Saints. And Bournemouth versus Norwich, nil-nil. I'll take this one. The only thing we can really take from that is that before the game, neither team had kept a clean sheet. So, of course, football being football, they both kept a clean sheet against each other. I think that's just how football works, isn't it? Um, and I think that's about it for the show. I think we've just about hit 60 minutes. So I just need to thank uh, Drew. Drew, what was that baseball player's name earlier? Not the good one, the lesser one. Yeah, Wally Pip. There you go, Carl, you're Wally Pip, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Sterling work, as always, Drew. Thank you ever so much for being on the show. Um, I do believe you'll be joining me next week, I hope. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. If I could say one thing real quick. So regular listeners of this show know that I have my own podcast on the counter with Drew Pels, which you can find on you know all of your podcast streaming services. But I, I implore everyone listening to go download this week's episode. The reason is because my co-host and I, we went on a little bit of a tangent and he made an agreement on air under no duress under no coercion, under no false pretenses, that he will get a tattoo. And I guarantee you it is the worst tattoo of all time if we get 5,000 downloads and views on the corresponding uh, YouTube video, which is not a lot. So everyone listening now, I implore you, go download my podcast on the counter with Drew Pels. Listen to the episode from uh, yesterday, Monday. I promise you'll love it and you will have a part in helping someone get a tattoo that you don't have to pay for and they will instantly regret and it will ruin their lives. So if you want to have some fun, go over to my podcast, On the Counter with Drew Pels. There you go. Get it done, lads. Get listening and downloading. I want this tattoo to take place. So with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast in association with Loser Paul. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network.